So on one hand, I mean, one thing probably people will notice, like I'm a deep believer in the church, right? On one hand, and it's so much of who will be a witness, probably, which probably bucks a little bit against some of the instincts of, I think, our progressive Christian kind of moment that many people are engaged in. I, like I am a deep believer in that. On the other hand, I'm not, I have no deep commitments to the institutions that we call church, right? I don't think that we owe institutions and organizations that we call church any kind of, we don't have obligations to that. Churches where two and three are gathered together, right? Um, and so we can form, we can be ecclesia together without necessarily participating in churches and institutions that refuse to accept their vocation to do justice and to pursue, you know, to, to show mercy and to participate in God's deliverance in the world. And so to, to the degree that they reject their vocation and their calling, um, it, I would encourage people to find uh, other places where you can join in with that kind of work. You're listening to Upside Down Podcast. This is Lindsay Wallace. And I'm Kayla Craig. I'm Patricia Taylor. And I'm Elisa Molina. Upside Down Podcast is an ecumenical conversation at the intersection of justice, spirituality, and culture. And we've created this space with you in mind. So join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to Upside Down Podcast Episode 77. This is Lindsay Wallace. I will be your host for this episode, and you will hear two introductions to this episode as well. With me is Patty, and Patty and I were both on this um, conversation that you're going to hear in a minute with our guest, Drew Hart, but then there's a little storm where you are, Patty. Yes, a little storm <laughs> that just about ruined my evening. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to be on this call so bad, but it was the night that Tropical Storm Zeta was wreaking havoc in certain places and a windstorm knocked my power out. So you will hear in the second intro me saying hi and greeting our guest and then I'm gone. <laughs> yes, it was so sad. I realized about, I think it was like the second or third question where I was like, it's weird that Patty doesn't have anything to say about this. I feel like Right, she would be right. saying something She'd right be now. jumping in and saying something. And then I saw your little message that your power had gone out. So um, we're going to let you all listen to the full episode. And then Patty and I will be back at the end just to talk a little bit about some of her takeaways since she didn't get to be in the interview. So here comes the new intro and our interview with Drew Hart can't wait. Welcome to Upside Down Podcast. I'm Lindsay Wallace and I am your host for today's episode. Show notes can be found on Instagram at Upside Down Podcast. Quick shout out to our growing Patreon community who keeps us free of ads. We are proud to be a 100% listener funded podcast and if our conversations are resonating with you, you can support them and us at patreon.com slash upside down podcast or upside down podcast.com and click give in the upper left hand corner. Patty is joining me today for an interview with public theologian and professor of theology at Messiah College, Drew Hart. Drew, welcome to Upside Down Podcast. Yes, welcome, welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here with you. Uh, this is, I'm looking forward to it. Great, we're glad to have you. Quick background on Drew for those of you not familiar with his work. He has 10 years of pastoral ministry experience and is the recipient of multiple awards for peacemaking. Drew attend, attained his MDiv with an urban concentration from Missio Seminary and his PhD in theology and ethics from Lutheran Theological Seminary at Philadelphia. Drew co-hosts the Inverse podcast with Jared McKenna and is the author of two books, The Trouble I've Seen, and most recently, and our topic for today's conversation, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. So, Drew, I would love to hear. Well, first of all, let me say that whenever we interview an author who's re recently written a book, I just want I want to talk about the whole book, all of it. <laughs> right. um, Which is not doable with my yeah. book, right? A little <laughs> not too long. Not doable at all. Yeah. This, I mean, really, as I was putting together our outline for tonight, you could have a, and you are actually doing this on your podcast. Mm -hmm. You could have a podcast episode on each every chapter. chapter. <laughs> Um, right. There's right. so much in there. And just personally, I will say that um, I feel like this is a book I've been waiting for. And 
and longing for, really, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, my first question for you is what compelled you to write this book? In many ways, it actually flowed out of the work that I was doing around my first book, Trouble I've Seen. I was going across the country, engaging congregations around anti-racism and discipleship and what that means for the local congregations. And and actually was pleasantly surprised at you know the positive responses that I got. But one of the things I heard was, all right, so it seems like at the end you're calling us and inviting us to, you know, be in solidarity in the struggle for oppression and work for racial justice. And we have no idea what that means or looks like. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hmm, yeah, it sounds like, you know, there's like something else that needs to kind of follow up with this work. And so because I had been doing a lot of stuff like that in my own neighborhood here in, in um, Harrisburg. Um, I had a lot of personal experience as well as scholarship around some of this that I felt I could really, you know, use and kind of dive deeper into some of the stuff I began in Trouble I've Seen, but then move more towards praxis oriented, you know, racial justice work. Um, and so, yeah, that was kind of the origins for why I felt I needed to write this. Now, of course, anybody that reads the book knows I do a lot more than that, right? In fact, in some ways, that's just the tail end of the book. Um, um, precisely because I figured now's the time for us to dig deep into these bigger issues that are plaguing the witness of the church in the public square. Um, the fact that we have never really owned the role that the church has played in white supremacy. We have not yeah. grappled with what it means to be the church, even within our own confines, right? We haven't we've domesticated uh, and whitened and watered down Jesus and and then think of um, doing justice solely in terms of electoral politics mm-hmm. and have a restricted imagination for the ways that we can engage in grassroots work in our neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So our theme for this season of Upside Down Podcast is the necessities. And so we've talked... Um, about the necessity of community and the necessity we talked with Ike Ndolo about the necessity of beauty. And we talked about the necessity of life. And we recently talked with Lisa Sharon Harper about the necessity of voting. And so we're actually recording this before the election, but it will come out after. And I experts are telling us we might not know the results necessarily right away, but I wonder for you, when we think about the necessity of being a witness, what does being a witness mean to you? Yeah, I mean, at the heart of it, I mean, and I, we should just name up front that the way that the word witness has been used so often um, in evangelicalism has often been about um, trying to convince someone to accept that Jesus died for, their, for them so that they can go to heaven, right? That's, that's usually what people have meant by witness, which I think is a terrible way of understanding the word. Um, but bearing witness to what God has done in the public square, right? I mean, in fact, that's actually what martyr actually means. Um, it's a witness, um, but it's, it's a way of life. And how do how does our very life in everything that we do bear witness to God's reign, um, bear witness to God's dream for all creation, bear witness to God's justice and God's deliverance, right? Um, how do we live that out in meaningful ways in our society? And so that's really what I'm getting at and inviting people, right? The question of, of the title, right? Who will be a witness? Who's going to step into this? and live with integrity and with credibility in the public square. Yeah. Yeah. In the book, you say that the call of Jesus is really quite simple, despite how complicated we have made it by obfuscating that basic Christian vocation, follow after the way of Jesus. And I wonder, what does it look like to follow after Jesus in 2020? And what is required of us in this particular moment? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess the two things we've got to wrestle with if we're going to ask what does this look like for 2020 is what does it mean to follow Jesus, period? And then what's our context, right? So, yeah. I mean, again, we I think the church, which has rarely done this, but we need to immerse ourselves in the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I think that we do, uh, I call it a cradle to the cross jump with Jesus. <laughs> We love baby Jesus, and we then all of a sudden, lots of folks want to jump to Jesus died for you, yeah. And so his birth, his life, his ministry—you um, know—those things are seem to be unimportant for most people in terms of their understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to be a follower of him. Or we treat him like almost like a buffet table, right? You pick and choose mm-hmm. what what stories or parables you like, but we don't actually immerse ourselves 
in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and figure out what it means to take up the way of Jesus. And so, yeah, I think discipleship first and foremost is, has to be rooted in um, Jesus and the work of Jesus, the the commitments of Jesus, the politics of Jesus, um, the priorities of Jesus, right? That the Samaritans, the vulnerable women, those socially stigmatized in society, the least last lost and little ones, right? The Jesus centered uh, who are marginalized in their own communities. And so I think that that's the starting point is actually participating in God's reign um, as we're being discipled into the story of Jesus and making the story of Jesus visible. But it can only find its meaning when we you know, understand our own context that we're living in. We're living in the aftermath of colonialism and white supremacy and and still efforts at trying to pursue Christian supremacy, coercive Christian supremacy over society that we see from some self-professed Christians. And so that's the aftermath. That's the context. And I would say you can't be a faithful follower of Jesus and not be explicitly anti-racist, not in this context, right? Yeah. because we're so, our society literally is, it's embedded and structured by race um, from the top down, um, our geography, everything it's, it's, it's organized by race. And so you must be explicitly anti-racist. I think that that would be probably the first starting point when we're thinking about the, the impact and the inertia of white supremacy and colonialism that continues to still plague our society today. Of course, there's so many other things I would also include along with that, but I think that that probably ought to be at the forefront of our minds because white supremacy is continues to devastate mm-hmm. our world, our imagination, our politics, people's sense of identity and belonging and how they seek and use power in the world. All of those things are rooted and connected to um, the, the introduction of the idea of whiteness in our world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to give white supremacy more power than it should have or deserves but it's really it's the soil it's the foundation of our country and so it's hard to not have that as your starting point as you're saying to to explicitly um stand in that anti-racist space and to work out of that um yeah and because i mean think of it like you know if we're living in 1850 if you're not explicitly resisting the slaveholding society then you're complicit right i mean it's that kind of and I think we just have taken it for granted, white supremacy. We're, we're too comfortable with the more sophisticated versions of white supremacy that exists today yes. to realize how much resistance. And I don't just mean like Donald Trump. That's that's low hanging fruit. I'm talking about right. everything. Yeah. Like it's just the way that we structure our society. Yeah. 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 So I wonder that kind of dovetail nicely into a question that I've been thinking about, and I think Patty has too. And I just wonder, like, so for those of us who and I should preface this with we at Upside Town Podcast love the local church. Um, But for some of us following after Jesus in this way um, has actually led us away from our local church and into the streets where the church community we we were a part of has been unwilling to go. And so following Jesus has led us outside of our local church. And I just wonder what words of encouragement would you have for those of us who following Jesus has actually taken us outside of that context where we, um, I don't know, we expected to find community. We expected to find others who are willing to stand in that anti-racism space and found, wow, they're really not. And now we're in the streets. Um, but that faith element, um, that we have and we hold so dearly, maybe we're not able to feel that same camaraderie. I don't know. So on one hand, I mean, one thing probably people will notice, like I'm a deep believer in the church, right? On one hand. And it's so much of who will be a witness probably, which probably bucks a little bit against some of the instincts of, I think, our progressive Christian kind of moments that many people are engaged in. Like I am a deep believer in that. On the other hand, I'm not, I have no deep commitments to the institutions that we call church, right, right? right? I don't think that we owe institutions and organizations that we call church any kind of, we don't have obligations to that. Churches where two and three are gathered mm-hmm. together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can form, we can be ecclesia together 
without necessarily participating in churches and institutions that refuse to accept their vocation to do justice and to pursue, you know, to, to show mercy and to participate in the, God's deliverance in the world. And so to, to the degree that they reject their vocation and their calling, um, it, I would encourage people to find uh, other places where you can join in with that kind of work. Um, but it's precisely at that moment that we realize that we need community. I really deeply believe that yeah. everyone needs community. Everyone needs to be in spaces where we can give, receive, and share love, to be loved, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we need places that are going to encourage us and challenge us to live differently. I, just the other day, um, we were having a conversation with the inverse community around economics. In fact, it was around my chapter around economic injustice and just talking about the need of community to embody something else beyond just capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, the unrestrained cap capitalism. And so um, we can build that in community together where we actually share our resources and live differently um, where reparations and redistribution of wealth can actually happen, right? Um, and so I think that that would be my encouragement is to build that community that you're looking for, right? To draw, invite people, other other people in to cast the vision of God's dream, right? Mm -hmm. And see who wants to join in with that work. Um, and it ought to always be messy. It ought to always be um, a part of us is, um, you know, I, I do think there's space for kind of these intimate, you know, circles of followers of Jesus, but also, uh, follows Jesus intermixed and engaging and in, in participating and collaborating with our neighbors across the board. And so yeah. um, interfaith work and, and work with faith, people of non-faith, I think all of that is important work as well. Yeah. Yeah. And as someone, I, I kind of find myself in that space. I really appreciate that tension that I feel like you held in the book. Like it's, it's really obvious that you have a deep love for the church, um, but that you're not willing to forsake uh the reign of God and what you know to be true about God for the institution of the church. Um, I don't, I don't know that I've experienced a lot of, of authors or, or just like thinkers right now who are able to hold that tension. Well, like you said, it's maybe not super popular in the more progressive Christian circles. Um, but to continue to maintain, like, no, we're working for the reign of God. The ultimate goal here is Shalom. And we get that picture from Jesus and his life. Um, I appreciate that you were able to hold that tension well. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I mean, it's it's tempting to just want to be a lone ranger and just go on, go at it on your own, yeah. right? Like, forget them. Um, but but I think that it's precisely at that moment that we, we can build our own community of kinships, right? Of networks, um, that we can build that and see that happen. And it can be done in a whole crea a creative ways. Um, just uh, so again, I'll talk about the inverse. We had... We've been growing like this kind of almost like a family. And and we had someone in our group who had a lot of needs, um, healthcare, debt, all kind of stuff. And like thousands and thousands of dollars were redistributed within like an hour wow. um, to cover that person's debt. You know what I mean? Like, and this is so this is not a church of proximity, but people that have been gathering together to encourage one another and to learn and to grow. Um, so there's creative ways that we can make this happen. And I think um but, but I do think we do need community. We need to be encouraged. We need people to also be able to speak into our lives and get into our business like right. in a healthy ways, right? Um, but to, to, to challenge us to be our best selves. I think that, that we all, everyone needs that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the other things that you say in the book and that I've definitely heard from people uh, recently, but even, even before 2020, is that a lot of Christians prefer to think of Jesus as being apolitical. And I just wonder, what do you say to those Christians to help widen their experience of Jesus? Well, number one, I, I guess I often start with what's our definition of political? Um, I think yeah. sometimes some people, their problem is just that they're conflating partisanship with political. Mm -hmm. And so I want to differentiate that, that when I, call Jesus political, I'm not in any way suggesting that he's aligning with any political party um, in any kind of formal sense like that. That's not, I mean, Jesus doesn't care about Republicans or Democrats. That's not his vision, <laughs> right? right? Um, now, it doesn't mean that his political implications don't have meaning for um, these parties and, and how we think through them, but but those things are not one and the same. We can't conflate them at all. And But what 
when we say political, we're talking about how we organize society. Polis is the word for city, mm-hmm. right? It's concerned about how we organize our society and its impact on our neighbors. So the question is, does Jesus care about how society is organized and its impact on people? Yep. Yes, it's very clear. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not acknowledge that. Um, and so when he, you know, his engagement with the Samaritans, that's political, um, his confronting the Jewish establishment, right, for their exploitation. He calls them a den of robbers. Yep. That's political. Yep. Um, they are the establishment right, of that day. Right. When he calls uh, Herod a fox, right, in, in Luke 13, <laughs> that's political, right? Um, and, and so I think that the idea that somehow um, it's not political is just, I don't know what that is. I mean, it's just uh, us trying to impose our, you know, church and state separation mentality, which in and of itself isn't even even what it actually means. But but nonetheless, we try to impose these paradigms onto um, a first century context and they, they it wouldn't even make sense to them. Yeah. And so, yeah, Jesus is extremely political. Um, when he preaches the kingdom of God, that's political language. In fact, that's dangerous. It's subversive language. It could get you in trouble. Um, when first century Christians call Jesus Lord, that's extremely political because Caesar was supposed to be Lord, mm-hmm. right? When they call him son of God, um, Caesar was supposed to be son of God. Um, when, when they claim that Jesus brings true peace, that's in contrast to Caesar's claim to bring peace. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things, it's intentional that the Christians are using these words and applying them to Jesus in an extremely subversive way. Um, and so the moment that we ignore the I mean, some of it is our distance that we don't hear the politicalness even in the language, yeah. but they were very intentional to to use these political, even gospel, euangelion in the Greek, it was used in very political ways. It was announced like a military victory or Caesar's coming to town or something like that, right? Yeah. And now that's being applied to, to the life of Jesus. Um, and so, yeah, e- extremely political. So the question is, how do we reorient our politics away from just being captive to the common sense of our day and realign it to to the politics of Jesus and to the politics of God's reign. Um, that's really the, the hard work that we have to do. Um, but when we kind of bring our assumptions, our taken for granted views on political values to Jesus, then we end up um, distorting and ending up with a mangled political witness in the public square. Yeah, yeah. You talk about how like our 21st century sensibilities miss so much about Jesus's first century socio-political relevance. And I think the story of Jesus flipping tables in the temple, um, like that for me exemplifies so much of how we miss that. Um, Because I can't, I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard that passage or that story preached, but it's not very often. And yet it was so huge and so monumental and revolutionary. Um, And what you said is that all business as usual is halted through Jesus's prophetic disruption. And I think about the moment that we are in and how, um, so I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't think I said that earlier. Um, And so we've had consistent over 180 days, I think now, of protests um, in the streets. And Hmm. what is often chanted is no justice, no peace. And so organizers and protesters have been very intentional to disrupt the peace and the business as usual. And how the church's response to that is often like, well, what's the point? What are you trying to accomplish? This is a waste of time. Why are you still out here? Why are you in, you know, the attorney general's neighborhood? Like his neighbors should be allowed to sleep. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, that, that imagery for me and, and kind of how you directly brought this 21st century moment back to the first century where Jesus said, no, all business as usual will stop here because this is not how this is supposed to go. And until the system changes, until the empire is brought to its knees, business as usual will not continue. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he shut it down. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, he shut the place down, and and he knows exactly. I mean, it, like it's hard for us to grab. Like Jerusalem is the center of everything: the religious center, the political center, the economic center, the cultural center, and they're in cahoots with the Roman Empire, right? right. The Sanhedrin and the leadership there. 
he goes in. I mean, this is the most subversive act you can imagine yes. in terms of going into Jerusalem and, and and in the most holy of weekends, Passover weekends, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so he times it out. I mean, I show in Mark, right, that he goes in, he scouts out the situation. He's like, oh, no, this is not the right time. Right. Leaves and then comes back, right? Yes. Um, this is extremely radical. And so I think that even the language, so the one thing that I would say that's different, how I would narrate um, that moment in contrast to people saying they're disrupting the peace, I would actually say peace is disrupting violence. That's what Jesus is doing, yeah. right? Um, it's that, I, I, so peace for me is not just the absence of violence and the status quo. That's not peace. Right, right. Peace is shalom. It's the justice has to be present for there to be true peace. And so so, well, and I'll chant no, no justice, no peace with my neighbors. I don't care about that per se. <laughs> but, but in terms of actually believing what is actual peace, yeah, right? right? It's important for me to recognize that that peace looks in a violent world, peace disrupts violence. Mm-hmm. It disrupts the cycles of violence. Um, that's the only way to be truly peacemakers in a violent, in a violent situation, right? Um, to not do that is actually to be complicit in the violence that's going on. Mm. Yes. Amen. Your book, like we said at the beginning, like it, (laughs) there's so much to it. And one of the things that I really appreciate is that you go into specifics of what are the things that make for peace. Um, and, and we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, but I just wonder for folks who like a lot of people are activated in this moment and a lot of people are ready to stand in that, um, definitive space of I am anti-racist. I am willing to step out of my comfort zone. I want to get involved. Um, what are the ways that people can get involved? Yeah. So I sketch out a few things because I guess some of what I was thinking about was how can, um, and particularly I was thinking about congregations, right. That are actually willing to engage. How can they engage in grassroots work, um, in strategic and faithful ways. And so there's a few things that I identify. One is uh, just protest movement work, right? Yep. Um, participating in these movements that are happening. Um, and so there's great opportunity and synergy for us to collaborate with those who are frustrated. And sometimes um, what, when you research movements, like sometimes people think, oh, movements don't do anything. Um, but they can actually, yeah. they actually can make significant change, um, especially, I mean, there's certain criteria for things that need to be present for them to make significant change. And I talked about in the chapter, but, but they actually can. And so there's opportunities to participate that when the whirlwind is happening, right, so to speak, mm-hmm. and there's something's in the air and we strike when the iron is hot. Um, sometimes some really significant change can happen when a strategic and creative and, and sustainable um, work happening. But I also talk about on the flip side of that is organizing, right? Community organizing work that we can join in. Um, this is the long sustainable work. Um, aside from, it doesn't matter what movements, how people, what's the the buzz or the trends in any given moment. It's the ongoing work on the ground with one's neighbor, building uh, disperse redistributed power with one's neighbors, right? And giving, uh, finding voice uh, with with those who are suffering in your community and, and leveraging that and coming collectively together to leverage, to make social change. Um, and so it's that kind of long-term, um, it can be incremental at times, but it, it, but it grows in power as you build and collaborate with your neighbors. And so that's really another great option, especially because we're invited to, certainly Christians should be the ones taking seriously the suffering of others in their communities and coming alongside and joining them in that work. And so that's another great opportunity. Um, I do talk about electoral politics, of course, you can't ignore that. Um, Though I think that our, our approach to it is often backwards. We, we start with the political platforms that are handed to us rather than um, beginning with the pain in our communities. Mm-hmm. We ought to start with the pain in our communities uh, where, where suffering is disproportionate in our communities. And we ought to bring a prophetic voice to the powers, right? To the establishment, um, telling them what we, we need, yep. not letting them tell us what the platform is going to be. And so I think that when we don't hold even the folks that we own, we vote for accountable yeah. and push them to be better and to go for better policies, um, that then we do a disservice in terms of even uh, fully engaging in the democratic uh, system. And and sometimes, and like I do have friends and I talk about it like in the book, like I have some friends who are anarchists who don't vote mm-hmm. and they'll say, and, and sometimes they have a point, right? They'll say, 
look, man, I do more political work than most of these folks who are voting, right? right. Um, and I'm like, eh, you know, maybe, and more <laughs> radical. They're willing to take more radical risks mm-hmm. than sometimes those who just vote every four years. And so now, of course, we don't have to choose between one or the other, right. but I do think we have to recognize that that we have to have a bigger, more expansive understanding of political action. And it can't just be limited to getting our guy in the office. Yeah, It's got to be a faithful prophetic witness and voice and challenge, as well as engaging all the other things that we can do all year round. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing when it comes to the electoral politics and I sort of thinking of it, I sort of think of it as like holding their feet to the fire, right? Like we elected you into office and now we're going to hold your feet to the fire to do the things that you told us you were going to do. And that, in my experience, has actually been far less intimidating and um, difficult than you would think. I think we have oftentimes this view of people who hold um, public office as like, sort of subhuman or <laughs> extra human or they're, they're different than us somehow. But at the end of the day, they're not. They're really just people who actually do work for us. And my experience when my family lived in Miami, working with um, doing some community organizing and advocating for safe housing in our neighborhood that was rapidly gentrifying, a small group of us neighbors who um, what started off as protest and and we I, and I'm going to ask you to to div, dive a little bit deeper in a moment, but um, started off as protest and went into organizing, and we ended up getting a by every other week meeting with our city council member and yeah. a t- seat at the table with my neighbors and the city council member, and we got an ordinance passed as a result of that, and different things changed in this city of four million people when there were just ten of us at the table. Um, That's right. And yep. and and it, it really helped me and helped me to experience and to see like he's just a guy, you know, at the end of the day, he's just a guy. And um, he's willing to sit down and listen to us because we were able to get his attention, um, which brings me to could you talk a little bit more? I think there's some confusion, particularly right now in this moment where we have so much protest happening the difference between protest and organizing and the benefits of like how people might get involved in protest and how people might get involved in organizing? Yeah, I mean, so protest move, I mean, it, it's really about mass mobilization, right? That's what the protest movements are. You, mm-hmm. It's just trying to get as many people out in the streets yeah. or rally or march or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a numbers game. And in some ways, it's an easy way. When you have large numbers, it's easy for folks, you know, usually it's people's first political action, right, yep. is these kind of protests because um, it, it, it's less intimidating in, in masses of people coming out. And so that, that's the strength is the numbers itself. Um, and, and what is interesting is despite um, realizing that <clears throat> that you're only able to, you know, garner so much, you know, people into the movement, um, they say that you actually only need like 3.5% of the population um, sustained and active, of course, they have to be sustained and active, but 3.5% of the population, if you have a protest movement doing that kind of work, um, it is always successful. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, often the challenge is, is that protest movements are often not sustained, right? right? right. Um, and, and, and so you need some folks, at least some kind of strategy. And usually when it's like escalating and things like that, I mean, if, if people are able to do that kind of stuff, um, it, it can really build it and make some changes. And so, yeah, there, there's techniques to it. But of course, you know, um, just as easily as protest movements can come, they can go, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it dies down. We've seen it. I've, I gave the example in the book of one time, you know, when um, first when it first came out that Donald Trump's administration were separating families, right, yeah. from one another, the kids put in, in cages. Um, and we had a... Uh, protests um, rally in March in Harrisburg. And it was the largest, like, I think it's probably the largest Harrisburg has ever seen. (laughs) I mean, it was just massive. And I was invited to be one of the speakers. And when I was supposed to speak, it was supposed to be in front of the, um, the governor's mansion. And so when I was speaking, like literally there were people like on all sides of the block, like probably like a third of the people even saw me. That's how many, I mean, it was just huge. Um, And at the same time, like, a year later, we have another one, right? Um, same organizers behind, you know, pulling it together. 
and it's probably like 40 of us, right? <laughs> you know, um, and so, you know, that happens, that's life. But, but, yeah. but I think that that's the, that's, that's what happens with protest movements, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It doesn't necessarily um, always keep up and sustain itself. And so where, where that is its weakness, that's where organizing is strong. Again, it is this behind the scenes, it's just this ongoing work. People, you make commitments to organizing, right? You're committed to the work. Um, yeah. Everyone takes ownership in it. Um, people work together to identify the problems and the issues. Um, and so it's that kind of sustainable, organized work um, and structure, leadership, all of that stuff is in there, right? Um, and so it has the capacity to to keep doing its work, even when it's not on the news, even when that's not what people are talking about, you can still make those changes. And you usually, organizers are usually going to the political leaders or whatever stakeholders or at, you know, you're engaging um, and bringing your demands and your requests and, and negotiating and all that kind of stuff. And you're leveraging um, your community that you've been organizing to do that kind of work as well. And so, yeah. yeah. So those are some of the, you know, on the face differences. I mean, there's certainly other nuances and stuff, but I think that sometimes people use those terms interchangeably. I think that's what you're getting at, right? Um, and they don't yeah. necessarily realize um, that these are actually two different ways. And then often sometimes like there's tension, especially for organizers, you mm -hmm. know, there's a lot of times a, a dismissal of movement work yep. precisely because it's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for diving into that a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to throw one of your questions back at you from the chapter on economic injustice in the church. Um, yeah. You ask, how might a jubilee ethic fulfilled in Christ get reimagined in the 21st century? And how do we begin to embody that through Christ's presence in our community? Um, I don't know. How do you think about that now? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably two ways that I would probably... I would be calling for one is ecclesial reparations and one is societal, right? Uh, I actually say reparations and redistribution of wealth, right? I would say yeah. that in, in churches, there should be um, those, like there should not be poor among us when there's wealthy among us. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, and so I think that, that there ought to be um, redistribution of wealth I, but there also ought to be reparations. I think churches, denominations, especially those that, um, you know, benefited and participated in slavery um, or even past that. Right. Just the the overall economic um, exclusion of African-Americans and the mistreatment of Native Americans. Like, I think there ought to be reparations. It's a deeply biblical idea. And I think that the idea somehow that this is a bad word and this is about Marxism um, number one, who cares if it was Marxist or not? But second, it, this predates Marxism, right? Um, right? And in fact, I think that uh, you read the Gospel of Luke or James or something, it might make uh, Marx blush, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, Jesus doesn't <laughs> hold punches as it relates to his his radical, devastating economic critiques on the wealthy in the Gospel of Luke. And so um, I think that we've got to take seriously the Jubilee ethic and think about what that means. And so, yeah, I think that churches, denominations ought to be thinking about their responsibility um, in making things right and bringing uh, healing to the economic harm that's been done for so long. Uh, but then we also have to have the national conversations as well. Um, while on one hand, I'm not like... I'm not very optimistic given our nation, certainly not where we are right now. It doesn't, yeah. I think the fact of the matter is, despite whether I think it's likely, I think just from a matter of truth telling, speaking truthfully, um, we ought to say that reparations are owed and, are, and reparations should be done. That when you do, uh, if I talk to my kids, I have little boys and, and if one of my kids like hurts my another brother, um, they're quickly, oh, they just want to say, oh, sorry. And then they want to walk away. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works here, right? Not in this house. Um, you got to go make things right with your brother, right? And that's mm -hmm. always my challenge. You go make things right. Uh, figure out what he needs so that he feels good and that he's well again. Um, and if we can uh, see that the need for that with kids, um, yeah. why can't we see that on the larger scale that it's not okay to for centuries to beat down on people, um, to exploit them, to, to treat them as property, um, to terrorize them, right? To exclude them from participation in the economic system. And then to just be like, oh, sorry, why, why can't we just get over it now? 
um, mm-hmm. that, that that's just morally bankrupt. And so I think that we can yeah. do better. And if we actually want healing and to move forward and to thrive as as a people, then I think that that's the only healthy way forward for us is to deal with um, the wrongs that have been done and try to find healing. And that, that's precisely why I kind of lean into the Zacchaeus story, right? Because he yeah. embodies all of that. Yeah, I love the I love that you pulled that out of the Zacchaeus story and and just how we talk how you talked about we teach children the song about Zacchaeus being a wee little man, but we don't actually talk about what he did to repair the harm that he had done. It, it's it, it's an overlaying of the actual biblical story, right? So it's close enough that we feel like mm-hmm. we're talking about it, but it <laughs> takes out the punchline of what it's all about. And so by that point, then it's just another domestication of another Jesus story. Yeah, yeah, it it feels it's sanitized, right? Like we cleaned it up and made it acceptable to those of us with resources and power that we don't want to give up. Right. Um, I loved the chapter on liberating Barabbas. Um, I just there's so much there. Like I could we could just talk about that for the whole episode. But one of the things you say, and I don't actually think it's from that chapter, but it made me think about him, is that. You said, I believe you have to feel the lure of violent resistance before you really understand the liberating way of Jesus. Yeah. Can you, can you say more about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I, and some of the reason why I say that is because I, it's pushing against, I, I move in a whole bunch of different circles. I got like black church, black prophetic tradition circles, but I also have um, like Anabaptist circles that I kind of move in a little bit. And I'm 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 always worried about um, Christian pacifists, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, not necessarily because I think they got Jesus wrong. I think they understand aspects of Jesus that I think a lot of society ignores. Although I think they still miss some of it. Um, but but I do think that that it's a it's a comfortable Christianity that doesn't reflect the way of Jesus, right? Um, and so I, I we've seen it in the last few months, you know. Um, and these are, in fact, not always even pacifists, just but anybody critiquing how oppressed people deal with violence yeah. and respond to violence, right? It's funny how people who aren't even pacifists all of a sudden want Black people who are oppressed to be pacifists. It doesn't even make sense. You know, make it make sense to me. One of the things that I, I want us to see in, in the Jesus and Barabbas story is, number one, Barabbas, if just as uh, it's a little bit of a spoiler, right? But 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 he's... He's an insurrectionist. That's what the Bible consistently says about him. And we've just completely ignored that and made it into a whole bunch of other stuff. And so we see that and he's compared to Jesus, um, who also is a revolutionary, right? He's another. And Jesus laments um, in Luke 19, if only they had known the things that make for peace. That's the things that make for shalom. That's the presence of justice and uh, flourishing and harmony of everyone, right? And so... What are those things, and how does that, how does looking at Jesus and Barabbas um, differentiate one another? And I think that, you know, when we realize that Jesus is also being watched as a subversive threat, right? Um, that Herod wants to kill him in Luke 13. Um, yeah. They come and, in fact, Jesus is questioned as they get him in Gethsemane: "Is why have you come?" With you know swords and clubs, like I'm a rebel, like I'm leading a rebellion, right? So they're watching him like he's a subversive threat, like he's a freedom mm. fighter. Um, they're not sure what's going on because his language is dangerous. Kingdom of God, he prioritizing the poor, calling yeah. out the powerful. Um, this is dangerous. What what's he up to? Why has he come all the way to Jerusalem and Passover? Is he going to do what others have done? Because there have been other revolutionaries that have done that same thing, right? So so what's up with this? And I think that you yeah. you you get the sense that um you know Jesus understands Jesus cares about actual people, poor people, people who are, are struggling, people who are hurting, mm-hmm. people who are suffering, and so when you look at Luke nineteen and him lamenting over um, those who are going to go the violent way and are going to um, experience you know destruction. He's not just condemning them. It's not like a oh, they should have been peaceful. They should have done a peaceful march. That's the, Jesus doesn't care about a peaceful march. He disrupts things. He mm-hmm. that's not his problem. But he does know that there are some ways that that uh, that will actually lead to shalom and justice, and some ways that won't. And so he it it, it forces us as yeah. he laments. He I think like Jesus feels what they're feeling. You know, like he. 
He's with them um, in that sense. He mm-hmm. cares about the same concerns and issues that they are concerned with. And so for us as people, like, I don't think we can really understand the Jesus way unless we are drawn to the Barabbas way, unless we're like, yo, like some days it doesn't look like mm-hmm. anything's going to work unless we blow up a police station. Right. And I think that that's precisely it's yeah. at that moment when you feel that that then you're ready to really understand what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus, this is not comfortable Christianity. He's not on the sidelines. He's saying, take up your cross and follow me. This is not what we we hear, take up your cross and we're, you know, I shouldn't say we, I'm using we in very expansive, but like so many folks, like when they hear that, they're thinking like, (laughs) you know, yeah, I took up my cross for Jesus today. You know, I I didn't get my parking spot at the store. So, you know, I had to park in the back, you know, or or my electric blanket mm-hmm. broke during winter, you know, pick up my cross for Jesus, you know, someone gave me a funny look because <laughs> my Christian t-shirt, you know, I don't, it's just, we've, we watered down the meaning of it, but this, this, mm-hmm. these were revolutionary words, crucifixion. Yeah. That's the only thing that people understand in the first yes. century is actual crucifixion, um, state sanctioned, um, torture, mm-hmm. embarrassment, um, helplessness uh, by the empire's, you know, instrument. Like that's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. And Jesus says, "Are you willing to die for the cause? Are you willing to take up your cross and, and struggle?" Um, but this struggle is going to look a little bit different than other people's struggle, right? This struggle um, is not tr- slitting throats, yeah. um, but it is committed to. Um, the cause of justice. It is committed to changing the very way that we structure our world and and prioritizing the least, last, lost, and little ones in our society. Yeah. Gosh, that's so good. I mean, I love how you point out that even the disciples were confused. And we know, you know, like one of the disciples draws a sword when the Roman soldiers come to get Jesus and he's like, put that down. But even they thought the revolution of Jesus was going to come a different way. Like even... You know, like their his words, um, that's how radical they were. Like that's how revolutionary and unsanitized his words were. Even those closest to him thought, well, like this is it how it's going to go down. I mean, he, he's talking the kingdom of God. Um, he's talking. He's, yeah. He's this kingdom, not the empire, is what is going to reign. There, this thing is going to all come to a bust, and we're about to, you know, bring this thing into action, right? And so they they deeply believed. In Jesus and yep. Him being able to change their situation and, and the and change it from the exploitation and injustice and oppression that they were experiencing, and to actually uh, restoring Israel outside of you know experiencing freedom and deliverance from all that they had been through. Yeah, yeah. So the book ends with a chapter on the politics of love and love as a word has almost lost its meaning in our culture. I mean, we talk about loving, you know, donuts and the beach and all kinds of things. And we certainly don't hear much about the embodied, costly, revolutionary love of Jesus. And so can you talk to us a little bit as we come to a close about the power of this kind of love and what does this kind of this yeah, um, you know, you. so much of what I wanted to do was to think with others, right? Um, and think about the folks that have helped me understand love better. Um, and so that it won't be just this kind of sentimentality that often is floating around. And so some of the folks are like Thurman and King, you know, Thurman um, helps me understand mm-hmm. the significance of love and not hating, right? On uh, for myself, um, uh, for my own well-being, <laughs> um, that this is actually good for me. Um, that 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 hating and the bitterness and hatred right. will eat me up. Meanwhile, my oppressor will be sleeping at night just fine, right? Um, and so and so, it's actually um, mm-hmm. in, in enhancing my own quality of life. Um, to just see that liberative quality, which I don't think gets emphasized enough, right? So, so then it becomes this kind of weakness mm-hmm. thing and stuff. No, this is actually mm-hmm. liberative for those who are oppressed. Um, but, but then King takes yeah. Thurman and, and politicizes it into the public square, right? Um, he understands its power for social change, and, and he believes that that uh, love is the most powerful weapon that the oppressed have at. at, at available to them to for social change work. Um, uh, so powerful that it can even convert an enemy into a friend. Um, and so it's kind of really interesting that there's a space, right? He, I mean, you think about King's like, 
beloved community, right? If that's the end goal, there's a space for anybody that wants to convert and join in yeah. with this, right? right. Um, there's a place for you. And so anybody, didn't matter who it was, even Bull Connor, if he was uh, had a was willing to soften his heart, he could have converted over and joined and switched sides, right? There was space for that opportunity was available for him. And so that's really powerful, I think, to realize. Um, and, and what we're talking about then is, you know, um, again, it's not being it's not um, a kind of love that's just like, oh, I just want to be nice to everybody. Um, but it's recognizing the humanity of each person, right? right? The dignity that every person yeah. is made in the image of God. Um, but it's also a love that is radical, the take up your cross kind of love, right? Um, and so uh, all these different things. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, it challenges us in terms of how we've been socialized in the world, because I call it the love gap, right? The different ways that we've been socialized to not love certain people. And especially in the United States to think about, you know, how American society um, teaches people not to love black people, right? Um, or other groups, like, like, what does it mean for us to, um, to that, that precisely the kind of love that we're being invited to is challenging us precisely at that moment that we're prone to not love somebody. Um, but then I got to get real. And that's yeah. why I talk about Jonah as well. Like, like for me, like I identify with Jonah so much. <laughs> I get Jonah. People I think don't get Jonah. I think they've missed it, mm. but I get mm. Jonah. Jonah makes complete sense to me. <laughs> Jonah is asked to go to be a, 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 a prophet to, you know, the Ninevites. Like, heck no, there's no way. The Ninevites are horrific. They're horrible mm-hmm. people. They're this the Assyrians. They're they slaughter people. They put put people's heads on spikes, and they were just they were just the reputation. It was just brutal and devastating. It was horrific. Of course, Jonah doesn't want to go to the Ninevites, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so he hits the first ship in the other direction. Right. That's what I'm trying to do, um, you know, because I knew what they really need. They need <laughs> what's coming to them, right? I mean, of course, and so. And so, of course, we yeah. have this fantastical story and, you know, we all focus on the fish and all that stuff. But that's just a way of kind of reorienting to show that, you know, that that he's got to get drawn in really powerfully to go and to engage them. And so he finally goes and he um, he he instead of just, you know, inviting them to repent, he gives like the best fire and brimstone message he can muster. You know, like he's like, he was studying Jonathan Edwards, you know, <laughs> sinners in the hands of an angry God or something, I think, you know, he's trying to get them. He's like, you're all going to burn. You know, yeah. there's no hope in his message. And yet they repent anyway, despite like this, <laughs> this really like terrifying, you're all going to burn kind of message. They all repent. They change even the animals, everybody in sackcloth and ashes and stuff. And so it, the story says that God relents, changes his mind and um and allows you know gives them another chance because they've changed right and of course this then this leads to the climax of the story which is Jonah's mad Jonah Jonah's upset he's like see this is exactly why I didn't want to do this I knew exactly what kind of god you were right yeah. and, and this is where I get Jonah I'm like because mm. I actually I. I don't see God as a sadistic monster that just wants to punish people. That's just not my problem. I know other Christians have that problem and masochistic Mm -hmm. and all that kind of, no, I don't, that's not how I know God. That's not who I've known God to be. I know God to be a loving God, a gracious God um, that wants to restore, right? Restoration rather than punishment, I think is what God is after. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, but there's sometimes just like Jonah, like there's some folks I think deserve what's coming to them. There's certain, there's, I mean, overall, yeah, yeah, restoration is good, but certain folks, right? I mean, (laughs) just the evil that they have done, I don't want them to have a second chance. I want them to get what's coming to them, right? And that's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's Jonah's heart. He's, he's really Mm -hmm. upset. And so he's like, God, I knew, and that's, it was in chapter four, right? I knew that you were a loving God. I knew that you were slow to anger, willing to relent and change your mind, right? Like I knew the kind of God you were. And, and I get that. And, and so the invitation then is how do we uh, realign ourselves with that kind of powerful, transformative love, that kind of restorative love, that kind of restorative justice, um, that that's what we've got to tap mm-hmm. into. And to the, the degree to that we can join in with God's love in that kind of powerful way, seeing even uh, horrific people, the possibility that they can e- also change, can repent 
and be restored, like even that is possible. Um, that that it's hard, but but I think that it invites us to a different imagination. I think right now, you know, our society. I mean, our prison system. Aside from the fact that it's half the people there <laughs> should be in prison anyway, but even for folks that have really done wrong, right? Do you think about people yeah. who have murdered and raped and just horrible yeah. things? Like we have no vision for um, how to restore people. Like we just don't have a, a capacity to even think. Our imagination is just lost from that, and so I think that um, that yeah, yeah. I, I think that this kind of love that we see it's it's powerful, it's transformative, um, but it's hard. And so you know, it, it, on one hand, it's extremely political, but on the other hand, it's are we willing to love the way that God loves? Are we willing to yield to that kind of love and to be a conduit of that kind of love? Um, because it, it's powerful when we actually do. And I think that we've seen historically in moments, especially, you know, in the freedom struggles and such, uh, that it can be really powerful um, if we do it and um, we join in with what God is doing in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredibly powerful. And I think also, like, I just think about how it's deeply personal, but that the ripple effects of that have the possibility to, I mean, just change everything, um, to be able to see people the way that you're describing and to love our enemies in that kind of way is, is incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Can you share with our listeners where they can find and follow your work online? Yeah, you can find me. Um, I'm all over the place, I guess. Um, I'm on Twitter um, and Instagram, both D-R-U-H-A-R-T. Um, you can find me on Inverse Podcast with my Australian friend, Jared McKenna. And so we cause trouble globally um, together, which is a lot of fun. Um, you can find me on Facebook and a Facebook page. Actually, I think my Facebook regular is full, but the Facebook page you can catch me at. Um and of course, you know, I'm uh, every now and then, normally when, when there's no COVID, I'm speaking and traveling all over the country, but that's not happening right now. But I am still um, zooming in and on different, all kinds of different platforms these days. So you can probably catch me online sometime um, as well. And you can find both my books uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold. And my newest one actually now has an audio book version that, that recently came out as well. So I'm really excited about that. Nice. Yeah, that's great. And the book was published by Harold Press. So that would be an excellent place to get it. I would encourage folks to go that route. Um, Drew, thanks so much for your time. I know that it is valuable and there's a lot going on in the world right now. So we appreciate you taking the time to sit down and, and chat with us. I know our listeners are really going to appreciate this conversation and I, I definitely did as well. Yeah, thank you. This has been really good. Yeah, I appreciate our time and our conversation together. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so Patty, I would love to hear your thoughts. What did you think of my interview with Drew? Well, it was excellent, just as I thought it would be. <laughs> um, I mean, really, really, it was. I, man, there's so much to unpack in this book. And (laughs) I know that you all said this at the very beginning, like if only we could just go chapter by chapter and like ask all the questions um, because there was so much richness and, and you said something that really resonated with me. Like you've been, you've been waiting for something like this. Like this is something Mm -hmm. that you, you've just been waiting to come along. And so, um, gosh, there are so many things that I could, I could speak to. Um, one thing that stood out to me is just the expressed um, statement that you can't be a follower of Jesus and not be explicitly anti-racist. And Mm -hmm. I think that this, I feel like should be known, but we are still in this place where that is so such a hard idea to grasp. Um, And I just, I I really like, it just struck me as like, like knowing in certain circles and certain spaces, like just those words just bring up so much and there's examining and re-examining and, you know, uh, making sure we have the definitions down, making sure we have this understanding, making sure all these things, just to be able to say, if you follow Jesus, you should want to be anti-racist, like the end period, mm-hmm. um, was just something that I felt was so timely and just so necessary. And, and I just really appreciated just all of the interview, um, you know, Drew was just very pointed and very clear with all that he was expressing. And so, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how we're still, I mean, I say we like 
collectively, but the people are still trying, right? Like they're still mm-hmm. trying to claim Jesus and also something that's not anti-racist. Um, right. And, and that's just, yeah, that's just not the way, not the way. Yeah. He said, we're of. too comfortable with the sophisticated versions of white supremacy as they're mm. playing out. And I was like, Ooh, that's a word. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the other um, part of the conversation was just um, how you just dug in with the tension that that he holds really well with with um, how we can follow Jesus outside of the local church, but also having a love and appreciation of the local mm-hmm. church. Um, like what did like I actually wanted to ask you, um, like what. Like, do you feel, I don't know what the word is. Like, do you feel better after hearing that? <laughs> like, I feel like that's something that you, that you, we're always taught to like pick or choose, right? Like, like we need to be yep. so committed to the local church that, you know, um, if we're, if we, if we're outside of the doors, then, 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 oh no. Um, but then like, it's, it's not an either or thing. So how did you mm-hmm. kind of, um, make sense of that? And, and, or is that something you've are, are already been thinking and he just like put into words for you? Yeah, I think that is what I meant at the beginning when I said this is a book that I've been waiting for mm. and longing for mm-hmm. um, was that tension, was that ability to hold, look, I love the church, but as an institution, mm-hmm. I could take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, yeah, I've been feeling that for a long time and and maybe have said it in... <laughs> not into a microphone and you know when thousands of people are going to listen to it but I've been thinking that and saying that I would say probably for a few years now um well let's be real since the 2016 election I have yeah. been thinking and feeling like I am not down with this institution with mm-hmm. this you know this domesticated version of Jesus as Drew says um so yeah he really named it um, in a, like you said, a very clear, a very poignant way that was really encouraging for me and, you know, mm-hmm. made me feel less alone in the sense of, um, I don't have to be about the institution in order to love the church and to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was helpful for me. Yeah. That's really helpful. Um, yeah. I mean, they're really just so much, um, I think that this is an episode where, um, it would do us all well to listen to it more than once. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And of course, like get get his book um, and get his first book too. Um, because, I mean, he really has is a wealth of knowledge. Like he is brilliant and it's obvious. Um, and I think yeah. that like it just it just helped me the way that he framed so much of the conversation, like just from the very beginning when when you just asked the, the first question, like, what does it mean to you to be a witness? And immediately it was like, well, we've just gotten so comfortable with this idea that to be a witness means like we're witnessing and we're just saving souls and we're not embodying like the fullness of God's reign. It's a way of life mm-hmm. is what he said. It's so much more than just winning souls to Jesus. And that set the course for, I think his whole book and this whole interview is knowing that this is, you know, um, this is a, a holistic thing, you know, I, and I feel like that happens. That's been happening. <sighs> when I say it's been happening, I know it's been happening for a while, but I've just noticed it. I've had kind of my own light bulb moment of mm-hmm. this separation between like the soul and the physical body. You know, mm-hmm. um, like we we want to see souls saved, but then we don't yeah. care about the people who are the right. image bearers in which the soul resides. Yeah. And, and so um, and that's just been a real struggle for me. Like, OK, the soul is saved and then they're living, you know, um, under, you know, like a railroad track and they have mm-hmm. no food or, you know, they're carrying a baby to term that you, you know, want to shame them for, but you don't want to help provide them help, you know? Like, so mm-hmm. I just love how this, this whole um, interview, just talking about Jubilee, talking about um, the testimony of, of the, the group uh, of the online community that gave to that family, gave thousands of dollars to the family in yes. need. Um, and and just being able to to really like walk and exercise in that shalom. So it was just yeah. really encouraging to me and and I'm I'm just so 
thankful. I know he has a very busy schedule and um, his book, I hope, is in a lot of, of people's hands. And, and I think that especially this time, you know, when this airs, it's going to be a week after the election and we don't know what the results are at this time. But either way, like whether it's an election year or not, it's something we can put into practice every day, you know, always mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to community and, and um, our neighborhoods and what it really means to be a witness um, as far as a way of life. Yeah, definitely. So listeners, you can learn more at UpsideDownPodcast.com or Upside Down Podcast on Instagram. You're always welcome to join the Upside Down Together listener group on Facebook to process the episodes with the lens of God's Upside Down Kingdom. We also appreciate seeing you rate, review, and share the podcast episodes with your friends and online communities. And please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Well, I'm I'm so sad that you didn't get to be on that conversation with me, but I'm glad we got to <laughs> chat happens. about it. <laughs> yes. I know. Um, but I'm glad we got to chat about it a little bit here. And listeners, you've already heard the spiel. Go follow Drew. Subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you. We'll be back in your earbuds in a couple see of weeks. See you later. Upside Down Podcast is created and hosted by Kayla Craig, Lindsay Wallace, Elisa Molina, and Patricia Taylor. Episodes are edited by Tess Malone and Johnny Craig. Show notes are by Lana Smith. Learn more at UpsideDownPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.